Pay attention to all real estate investors. We have some really important information for you that you're not going to hear anywhere else about how your real estate closing transactions are going to happen. Michigan Real Estate Investor Network Podcast, hashtag the network. This is episode 13, brought to you by Natic, North American Title Insurance Company. Hi, everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Michigan Real Estate Investor Network. And I am Erica Weichel, owner of Michigan Investment Title, and I am here with Michael Holden. He is with North American Title Insurance Company. He is one of my favorite people and my underwriter. So we were going to ask him some uh, easy questions and a couple tough ones, and we'll, we'll go from there. Appreciate it very much. Thank you for uh, having me on today, and uh, look forward to uh, reaching as many people as possible and uh, hopefully uh, providing some answers to some questions you didn't even know you needed to ask. So <laughs> there you go. <laughs> thank you. Thank you for having me today. Absolutely. So. We work with a lot of real estate investors, and so one of the frequent easier questions we can start with is, why do we need title insurance? What does that do for me? And what is the difference? So, for instance, we had a, a client that called, and we did a transaction for him, and his house burned down three days later, and he thought he had title insurance and that we would cover the, the, the fire in the home. So there are different types of insurance. So what is title insurance? Why is it different? Why do they need it? So that's a fantastic question. And, and I, I probably answer that a little bit different to the general public than I do to investors because there are a little bit little bit different things that you're looking for from title insurance when you're an investor than when you're a uh, just a regular consumer. In general, a regular consumer, we we point to the idea that um, you know there are three pillars that make the real estate industry run, and those three pillars are uh, find, buy, protect. And it's it's you know how do you find a house, and whether it's online or whether whether it's uh, through uh, going to an open house and talking to a realtor. We say that the finding of a house is best helped by a real estate professional. And real estate professionals, you know, uh, can uh, help you drop the contract, can make sure that you're getting the most money if you're a seller. They, they, do, they do all those things. So that's the, that's the find part. The, the buy part is most people don't have hundreds of thousands of dollars sitting around, so they have to take out a mortgage. Uh, they, have to, they have to borrow money to be able to make a real estate purchase. So that's the buy part is working with a mortgage lender to be able to afford the property that you want to buy. And the protect part is... Uh, most consumers, the home that they buy uh, is the largest investment they'll make in their life. It ends up uh, in, in uh, oftentimes being their largest nest egg for retirement. And uh, protecting that um, is uh, an extremely important uh, financial uh, choice to make when you're buying a piece of real estate. And the protect part is the title insurance. The title insurance covers the consumer, the buyer, uh, for things that can go wrong with the title. And we think, oh, well, wait a minute, you know, what could possibly go wrong with the title? Um, 
there's any number of things that could go wrong with the title. Um, you know, I, I know this is, you know, 170 years ago, but uh, actually Abraham Lincoln's uh, father lost two different properties because of title problems, <laughs> our uh, 16th president. And so title problems have been around for um, uh, ever since the creation of our real estate system. And the way to protect against it is the way you protect against any catastrophic loss. The reason you have auto insurance is if you crash your car, insurance pays for it and replaces it. Well, if the title to your property is not properly done, if it does not have the proper uh, uh, paperwork, or if somebody else has, more importantly, a claim against that title, uh, maybe it was gone through an estate and somebody's owed some uh, some uh, minor share of the property. Maybe it, uh, the prior owner had a, a federal tax lien against them and the federal government wants that property to be used to pay for taxes. Whatever it is, you are, you are spending a small amount of premium, and in the case of title insurance, it's a one-time premium. You pay it one time for the rest of your life uh, to cover you against those kind of losses and protect against those kind of catastrophic uh, things happening. Yeah, absolutely. So we go ahead and you know, we'll do the search and we'll look for um, any anything that, that would cause us some alarm. We go back and we look at prior owners make sure that, um, that there's nothing going on there. But for real estate investors, it seems like um, some of the problems or issues that, that come up are due to using um, their LLC. Or maybe they have multi-members or um, maybe there's a power of attorney involved somewhere. So what, are, what kind of things can go wrong and what should they be looking for? So uh, an investor in real estate um, is a little bit better, a little bit different than a consumer. Uh, consumer wants to be able to buy a home, live there for 20, 30 years, have a, a, a nest egg that they've paid off, paid off their mortgage, things like that. An investor in real estate needs to be able to um, use that real estate as capital. And what I mean by that is whether they are uh, doing rehab work and they are flipping it, whether they are uh, financing, uh, putting some financing on that property so they can do um, other purchases, other real estate transactions, or maybe even if they're just uh, you know purchasing it at a wholesale price and turning around and selling it at a retail price to make some money, they need to be able to turn that property quickly as, as uh, collateral or as capital. And title insurance is the is the grease that makes it go fast. Um, the if you have a title insurance policy on a property, uh, that instantly tells a buyer that the property is uh, titled properly, can be sold, can be mortgaged, those kind of things. If you have title insurance on a property, it instantly means that uh, you can go to a bank and you can finance it. And so, for the investor client, having title insurance is just the guarantee that you're not going to get held up in whatever kind of transaction you want to do with the property. That's probably more valuable in the grand scheme of things as an investor than what a consumer uses title insurance for, which is uh, peace of mind, knowing that nobody's going to come knocking on their door two years later and say, hey, this property owes $10,000 in taxes or something like that. Um, obviously, that's the same protection that's offered to investors with title insurance. Uh, but knowing that you can have the property in production, flip it, sell it quickly, those kind of things. That's the peace of mind that comes from investors by having title insurance. Yeah. And with our investor clients too. So it's kind of funny. 
a lot of them don't know the difference between a warranty deed and a quick claim deed. And so we get a lot of people going, oh, well, it's fine. I'll just take a quick claim deed. And they don't understand that that means we're not insuring the transaction. So the, so the difference is, um, and, and, and I th- think about it this way, is, you know, when you, you know, we're in Michigan, the, the, the land of cars. I, I love it up here because of that. And, uh, you know, you get to see all kinds of wonderful cars on the road. I, I, I saw, um, you know, just, just actually driving up here, I saw a, uh, I, I was passed at a very high rate of speed by a McLaren, huh? uh, which is a little sports car that looks like a, like a Maserati or a, or a, uh, or a uh, Ferrari or something. But, uh, um, you see all kinds of cars up here, but I, I, I digress about that. But cars are important because when you purchase a car, you get a certificate of title from the state and you ha- are backed by the full faith and credit of the state of Michigan that says you own this car, belongs to you, there's no liens or taxes against it, um, all those kind of things. When you buy a piece of real estate, the government is completely out of the process for buying a piece of real estate. The only assurance that you have that you're getting the property that you think you are is the credibility of the seller. And so if a seller gives you a quick claim deed, quick claim deed basically says the seller has no responsibility whatsoever. Good luck. You're on your own. There's no guarantee about the status of title. And um, that's a little bit of a scary proposition to, to do into. A warranty deed from a seller says that the seller is going to warrant and defend the title to the property, uh, which means they are going to stand behind the deed and say that I am transferring title to you. It's a valid title. There's no liens against it, those kind of things. But even in the case of somebody giving a warranty deed, there can still be issues. Um, And that's why we buy title insurance is because there is no, you know, unless you're buying a piece of property from Warren Buffett or somebody real, you know, real solvent, um, there's no financial backing. You know, it's, it's only as good as a lawsuit against the seller is going to be able to prove to be able to uh, 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 fix or, or uh, uh, fix the title. Uh, so that's why we get t- t- title insurance. You can get title insurance whether you're getting a quick claim deed or a warranty deed because title insurance is ensuring that you own the property, that there's no liens against the property, uh, that you have the ability to sell, mortgage, convey, do whatever you, however you want to dispose of the property you want to. Uh, that the property is marketable. Uh, that's a that's a legal term. Uh, marketable title means that it's 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 a valid title against uh, on that property. But regardless, of, so when you buy title insurance, you are relying on the full faith and credit and the backing of the title insurance, not the full faith and credit and the backing of the seller to tell you that the title is correct. That's a very important distinction, right? <laughs> that's correct. Yes. <laughs> yeah. So it's um it's a. Uh, you know, my family's been in the title insurance industry for a um, hundred years. Uh, I love your story. Yeah, my uh, my grandfather started in the business in 1920. He was a 19 year old apprentice in uh, St. Louis, Missouri, and uh, title insurance has changed uh, 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 just a, 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 a you know a millennium worth of change in in that hundred years, and uh, you know it it um, it's it's had its um, detractors and it's had its uh, proponents. And uh, I, I think in the end, uh, what you find is the secondary market where you uh, up, uh, acquire capital for real estate mortgages would not be using title insurance if it wasn't the best alternative available. And it is the best alternative available. How do you protect your home from title problems? You get title insurance. Then you are transferring the risk of title problems to the insurance company 
not to you as the mortgage company, not to you as the investor, not to you as the consumer. And then, so speaking of, of that, our, a lot of our real estate investors, they use private money. So they're not going to a bank. They might have you know a resource, someone that has um, some funding that they have set up in an LLC. So some of them require a loan policy and some don't. So what is the benefit of a loan policy for someone that's doing private money? So there's two kinds of title insurance. One we've we've already talked about, which is what goes to consumers, what goes to uh, home buyers. Uh, that protects them for as long as they have an interest in the real estate, for as long as they, they own it, for as long as their heirs own it. Um, there are some policies that are still valid 100 years later because you have property that stayed in families for a long time. The mortgage policy of title insurance is a different kind of title insurance because a mortgage is a different kind of interest in real estate. So when you own real estate, um, you know, we like to say is, is the, the, the heaven to hell theory, which is you own it to the, to the farthest depths of hell and to the farthest reaches of the heaven. You own that property uh, for as far up as you can see and as far, as far, far down as you can dig. Now, that's, that's a little bit of a misnomer, we, we, you know. <laughs> but, but anyway, um, the, the mortgage interest is you have a lien on the property as a mortgage holder. You have the right to foreclose it if the, and uh, sell the property at auction if the, if the mortgage is not paid. Uh, a mortgage is tied to a note, obviously. A, a note has an interest rate and payments and, and, and those kind of things associated to it. So when we insure a loan policy, what we are insuring is that you have a valid lien on the property, that you have the validity to be able to foreclose that lien and, and enforce it. Um, that uh, the there's also an uh, issue about lien priority. Is, is your mortgage the first mortgage on the property? You know, uh, pe- people can take out home equity loans, second mortgages, those kind of things. And um, in Michigan, when the first mortgage the first mortgage is foreclosed, the second mortgage is wiped out, and, and that lien is no longer valid against the property. So, as a real estate investor, you would want to know for sure that your lien was the first mortgage. Correct. <laughs> and uh, that you had the power to foreclose it, uh, that it was executed by the owner of the property. Obviously, if, if it wasn't executed by the owner of the property, it would not be a valid lien. And so uh, that's really what a investor is getting when they're making a loan on property and they're getting a, a, a lender's title insurance. So if they don't get a lender's policy and they still go ahead and record a mortgage, they're basically just at risk for not being in first lien position, does that do anything for them um, to be able to foreclose on the property if payments aren't being made? It does not um, stop them from foreclosing. What it gives them is a guarantee against the inability to foreclose. So if you have title insurance and let's say you go to foreclose and um, there is a problem with the uh, mortgage. Oh, there's a typo in the legal description. We're not sure if this is recorded on the right property. Um, that would be a flaw in the mortgage, in the lien, and could be challenged by the borrower. Um, if you went through that process without title insurance, you would bear the cost of fixing that problem. You would have to hire an attorney. They would have to file a lawsuit to reform that mortgage. They would have to get the legal description corrected then they would have to go through with the foreclosure. Um, not a guarantee that that's always going to work. Now, I had heard something, and I think I was down in Ohio at one of one of NADAC's conferences, and they were talking about the 
the warranty deed was not recorded before the mortgage, and that caused a problem um, when they went to foreclose. So that is going to be specific to state law. Um, I do not think that was a Michigan case. So, um, you know, there are there are several states that um, include as part of the um, uh, process to document and record your ownership in the recorder's office. Um, if you mix up the recording, you record the mortgage first and record the warranty deed second, there are some states that that's still valid, that it doesn't affect it. And there are some states that that would affect it and it would actually cause the mortgage not to be valid against the property. And it just, and it just depends on state law here in Michigan. Uh, that's not the case. We, we have, um, we, we, uh, use mortgages in, in Michigan that will, uh, compensate for that problem. Which is good to know for Michigan, but again, a, another valid reason why, why to have title insurance. Oh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, if you're if, if you're doing business in other states, if you're making loans in other states, you don't have to know the myriad of laws from that state. You get title insurance. You know you have a valid lien. It's financially backed uh, that it is a valid lien from the insurance company. You can foreclose it. You know you have the position of which the lien is in place uh, based on your closing instructions. Um, the other thing too, the title insurance protects against is, uh, uh, loss of funds in the closing. Um, that's, that's sometimes passed over, but, uh, in conjunction with issuing a title insurance policy, an insurance company will issue a closing protection letter that says that the funds are insured while they're in the possession of the title agent or the, uh, insurance company. Uh, so you know that you have safe funds whenever you're dealing with a, an agent of a, of a title insurance company, just another way of protection, not only for the real estate, but also the money. That's a very. That's not something that people talk about at, at <laughs> <is> all. <laughs> at, I mean, we issue these CPLs all day long, but nobody nobody questions it. Yeah, so. it's just part, it's just part of the transaction. Nobody says well, uh, why he, why am I getting this? Well, right true, now. and even the private lenders they you know they just want a policy. But a lot of them don't even know to ask for one, even though they're entitled to one. They they don't ask for one. Wow. So it's a yeah, just one more thing for them. It's another nugget, right? Sure, that's right. You know, that's another, right. Um, so another thing we wanted to talk about were types of entities. So there are some real estate investors that will buy in their personal name, which is fine. Um, there are some that do LLCs where they're a sole member or a multi-member, and then there are some with corporations. So each one is, we have to do something different for each one to be able to close and make sure that all of our decks in a row. So um, can we speak a little bit to that? Sure, sure. So um, so corporations have been around uh, since the uh, uh, late 1500s, early 1600s. The, supposedly the, uh, the uh, first corporation that ever existed in the world was the uh, East India Company. It uh, was uh, formed in England by a, 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 a charter of the king. And uh, uh, the, the, the unique thing about corporations is this is an entity that is created by law that has shareholders. That is the definition of a corporation. And so um, corporations today are the same thing. They are an entity that's created by, uh, that is allowed to be created by Michigan law. Uh, to create a corporation, you file the necessary paperwork with the uh, Michigan Secretary of State. And the corporation will have shareholders. Corporation can have one shareholder or a corp corporation can have multiple shareholders. And a corporation can have shareholders that include individuals, include 
other corporations, include other entities like trusts or LLCs or things like that. So um, anybody can own stock in a corporation. And we think of you know stock in a corporation today is like the stock market where you can you know go on uh, some some online site and, and buy stock. But most of the corporations that we deal with in real estate are not big publicly traded companies. They are privately held. They have you know two, three, four shareholders, things like that. So privately held corporations um, have to act through a board of directors. Uh, in Michigan, a board of directors, I believe, has to have at least two members. Uh, so there has to be documentation that says who the board of directors are. All right. Sometimes that's in the form of a uh, of a uh, of an affidavit. Sometimes that's in the form of a of a resolution from the board of directors. Sometimes that's in a uh, statement from the secretary of the corporation. It can come in a lot of different forms, but corporations are allowed to act. And when I say act, I mean purchase real estate, uh, mortgage real estate, sell real estate by uh, their board of directors. Board of directors then appoint a person usually the president of the corporation, who is authorized to sign the documents on behalf of the corporation. That's where the title company comes in is because they have to verify all that. If, yes. if they're going to get a deed from a corporation to sell a piece of property, they have to verify all that information. The board of directors, that they've given proper authority for the transaction, that the um, uh, president is authorized to sign the documents, and that the tra- transaction can take place. And that's all... That's not in some document repository somewhere. That's not at the Secretary of State's office. That's actually documents that have to be created and provided by the corporation. Yes. So we always have to ask for these things. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and then, you know, we get a lot of... Um, some people that do these transactions on a regular basis, they will have these documents readily available. Um but it's funny because some people will just create a corporation and they have filed their paperwork and they look at me like, I, I have no idea what you're asking me for. Right. So, I mean, again, it's in a reason to maybe get an attorney involved, especially with, with a corporation, um, especially when you're dealing with shares. Sure. Oh, absolutely. <laughs> so if we move down to, to an LLC, so, I mean, you can be a sole member LLC. And we see that quite often, but now a lot of people are kind of pooling their monies together and they're doing a multi-member. So an LLC is a uh, more recent creation. It's not as old as the corporation (laughs) created in the, in the 1500s in England. Uh, An LLC is a a creation of state law and uh, all 50 states now have uh, an LLC statute that, that allows for their creation. The LLC stands for limited liability company. And what was intended by creating this classification of business is that it, it takes the best of a corporation and the best of a partnership and mingles those laws together to create a new kind of entity called a limited liability company. Limited liability company is an um, easy method for multiple partners to create a common ownership to be able to buy property, mortgage, sell, open a business, those kind of things. Um, So it has some of the traits of a partnership, which we'll talk about here in a minute. And then it also has the traits of a corporation. The biggest trait of a corporation that is the advantage to having an LLC is what we call uh, the the, uh, veil of protection. And the veil of protection is... If one of the owners of the LLC has a tax lien, a judgment, uh, some sort of court case against them, 
Um, if they own property in their individual name, that court case, that judgment, that tax lien could become a lien on the real estate and could impair the ownership of that real estate. If you own it in an LLC, the LLC is a separate and distinct entity from the individual, which means that the tax lien would also have to be against the LLC. The, the judgment or the lawsuit would have to be against the LLC. So you have this, this veil of, of uh, 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 sometimes called the corporate veil that uh, protects against uh, claims against individuals who are members or owners of the, of the LLC. Um, the LLC has its own set of laws, just like the corporation has to have a board of directors and a president and has to have a resolution that says that they're able to act. LLC has the same thing. Two kinds of LLCs in Michigan, a uh, member-managed LLC or a manager-managed LLC. And try and say those things really quickly and, and you'll get, uh, <laughs> you'll, you'll, you'll get tongue-tied. Um, but uh, the manager managed LLC means that there is one person that they have picked to function as the, um, for lack of a better comparison, the president of that LLC. Sometimes they're even called the president of the LLC. Mm -hmm. Um, and so the members execute a document, call it a management letter, call it an operating agreement, call it a, whatever you want to call it. But the, all the members execute an agreement and says this one person gets to, um, function as the uh, person that does all the business for the LLC. They get to sign the documents. They get to do those things. Uh, on a member-managed LLC, the members retain that right. So if there's three members, all three members would have to sign whenever they're doing a real estate transaction because the members are the cumulative managers of the LLC. Right. And so what's hard for a title company is when an LLC comes across your desk as owning real estate, you don't automatically know which kind of LLC it is. No, not without an operating agreement. <laughs> That's correct. So you have to get all those documents from the LLC to tell you whether or not it's member managed or manager managed. And then that, of course, determines who's going to sign on behalf of the LLC. And then if there are multiple members that all need to sign because that's the way they set it up, is there a way for them to appoint one person? So... Um, this would be a great question for an attorney, and I guess I should say that I, I am not an attorney. While I've, I've been in the title insurance world for uh, 32 years myself, I, 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 I sometimes get accused of playing an attorney on TV. I guess we're on TV now. I guess there that, you go. We, we could do that. But um, no, the. Um, but similar, like, like a corporate resolution would be similar to a power of attorney. So using a power of attorney where one member would give the right to sign to another member, um, there would have to be an extreme circumstance where that would get approved uh, by my company. Um, I, the, the better route would be that um, the members, let's say there's four members, they're not available for the transaction, so they want to have one person or two people sign on behalf of the LLC, um, that it, they, they would have to execute some sort of document probably have it notarized, that gives the authority uh, of the LLC to be able to have that happen. Um, is that possible? Yes. But if they set it up in their operating agreement as a manager, I'm sorry, as a member-managed LLC, all four of the members would have to sign. Got it. So that's why it's such an important distinction. It really so is. If, you've get, if you have four people that don't want to come to the closing table every single time, then they need to choose wisely. That is correct. That is correct. And and setting up an LLC, I mean, I know we're talking to a lot of in, investors out there. Uh, 
a lot of people, uh, you know, you can go on the Michigan Secretary of State's website and set up an LLC online. It's very simple and very easy. And inexpensive. And, it's, and it <laughs> is. And then, but the, um, but the, the backup is you probably need to talk to an attorney to have that operating agreement made up because if that operating agreement, <clears throat> excuse me, is not correct, you're going to run into these problems where you have to have multiple people sign and maybe you didn't want to have multiple people sign on the behalf of the LLC. And I've seen it too, where people um, partner with either you know family or extended friends that are all over the country. So, for a title company, if I need four people to sign for, as the seller, and those documents have to be notarized, and I have to send someone to California and someone to Kalamazoo and someone to New York and someone to Florida, it makes it difficult for us to coordinate that in our transaction. Not that it can't be done, but it's just it's extra steps and it's extra expense for everybody. So again, a, another you know reason to, to think about that when you're setting up your sure, your sure. LLC. So something that's been coming up a lot recently is um, land trust. Oh boy! <laughs> yeah. So I, I've probably been asked this question at least three or four times this week, and. I think that there are some seminars out there. I think there are some real estate gurus out there that teach people how to invest and they talk about LL or um, land trust. And when they do that, um, that might work great in some states, but particularly in Michigan, I just wanted to touch on that. Sure. So, so the first state to have a land trust statute is Illinois. And because Michigan borders Illinois, I think we get some some bleed over and some 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 of those kind of ideas that that come here. Um, a land trust is a just like I said, an LLC was kind of a combination of a partnership and a corporation. A land trust is a amalgam, a creation of state law that is a corporation and a trust combined together, and it has some very unique benefits in that. Under Illinois law, a land trust is a, a trust where a trustee can um, function as the primary person that's responsible for, as, as a fiduciary, to uh, maintain the property, sign on behalf of the property, manage the property, all those kind of things. And, and the investors in the land trust end up being called shareholders, and they actually get a shareholder certificate in a land trust and it becomes a personal property interest. It is now something as a share that you can sell, trade, you know, all those kind of things. Mm -hmm. And um, unlike the corporation that has to go through the process of having a board of directors and voting on who the trustee or who the president's going to be and those kind of things, the land trust has the advantage that the trustee is is pre-chosen. They're, they're, it, it's part of the uh, creation documents, the trustee, and there'll, there'll be a successor trustee and things like that. So there is never a process where you have to get all the owners together and have a vote and things like that. Maybe if you're dissolving the land trust or something like that. But um, So it has some unique benefits. Unfortunately, land trusts are not a legal entity in the state of Michigan. So however fantastic they sound, um, you can do it in Illinois, but you can't do it on real estate that's here in Michigan. Which is really the, the bottom line. People look really surprised. And um, and I think, like I said, I think it's because they're being taught by some gurus that that is a preferred method. And like you said, there's definitely some benefits to it. There are. But in Michigan, we cannot insure a transaction that's going into a land trust or coming out of a land trust. Correct. So could we, 
um, another question is um, just like a regular trust where like if you as an individual, you have your own personal trust and you deed your property from yourself as an individual into the trust and then you go to refinance it, the bank won't allow us to or they won't loan into the trust. So they have to quit claim themselves out of the trust it back into an individual. And I would say that that happens probably 98% of the time. Um, there are some trusts that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac will accept. Um, they're usually living trusts that have a husband and wife as the, as the co-trustees. Um, it's, it's, um, it's usually only on um, uh, 80% loan-to-value loans, so they're conventional-type loans. They're going to be sold on the secondary market. So there are, there are some exceptions to that rule, but you're absolutely right. The, the, the vast majority... Uh, if you have your property in a trust, you go to refinance, um, the, the banks can probably want you to take that property out of the trust, execute a mortgage as your individual, and then, and then go back into the trust afterwards. A um, little bit extra paperwork that has to happen to do that, but um, that's, that's, that is so that the, not because the property is uninsurable or anything, um, a, a trust can execute a mortgage. Uh, the uh, trustees act on behalf of the trust. The problem is that that lender is packaging that mortgage to sell it on the secondary market. And you can't have 999 mortgages that are executed by individuals and one that's executed by the trust and package those together and be able to sell them on the secondary market because that would be a non-conforming loan within that within that pool, and uh, so there's so there's those kind of issues that go on with with uh, with that kind of thing. Uh, but a trust is a valuable uh, estate planning tool. Uh, I know a lot of people use trusts for uh, making sure that their property stays in their families. Um, I have a uh, my. Uh, property that I personally inherited from my grandfather came through his trust. Uh, you know, it was, um, uh, he had a trust set up for himself and my grandmother. And, and, uh, uh, when he died, my grandmother became the trustee of the property. And then when she died, my mother and my aunt became the trustees of the property. And now I'm the third generation that that trust has been dissolved because when my mother passed away, uh, the property, the trust ceased to exist and the property was transferred into my name individually. And so trusts are a great estate planning uh, document that can uh, make sure the property stays in the family. That's another good thing to know, right? That's right. That's right. (laughs) So more on the advanced level, I wanted to go over FERPTA. Oh, yes. So this is something that we commonly see um, put in a purchase agreement, but generally um, the numbers... 300,000 sit next to it. So people don't realize what FERPTA is, um, and they generally assume that it only applies when the property is over $300,000. But we've run into lots of situations with (laughs) much lower price points where it does apply. So I'll let you kind of dig into that one. So that's why I did pull up my computer because FERPTA is, for those that don't know, FERPTA stands for the Foreign Investors in Real Property Tax Act. Uh, the first version of that was passed in 1980 by the uh, federal government. Um, and the um, uh, purpose of FERPTA is it enables the Internal Revenue Service to collect tax incurred due to a real estate property sale by a foreign person. Uh, and a foreign person can be an individual or a foreign person can be a entity, an LLC or a corporation or a trust uh, that is owned by uh, a foreign person. So it has many facets about it. So the first question we need to ask is, 
is the seller a U.S. person? Well, a U.S. person is uh, an individual who is a United States citizen, uh, born or naturalized, uh, or they are a person that has legal status. They, uh, they have a legal residency in the United States. Um, and that usually means they have a green card, uh, uh, permission by the United States uh, 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 to uh, work and live in the United States. Um, so first of all, that's, that's individuals. Now, a corporation, if a, corpor- a corporation is deemed a U.S. person, if it is a domestic corporation, meaning the corporation is created under the United States, however, if, it, if a foreign corporation has previously elected to be treated as a domestic corporation for tax purposes, the foreign corporation may provide the prior uh, to the closing the exemption from the IRS, the letter that you get from the IRS confirming that you are be, you are choosing to be taxed and treated like a like a domestic corporation. So you could have a let's say a uh, we already talked about uh, the the first corporation ever being in in uh, Britain in England. Uh, let's say you have an English corporation that wants to do business in or you know we're in Michigan. Let's even say something easy like a Canadian corporation that wants to buy property here in in Michigan. Um, as long as that pro- corporation has gone through the process of registering with the IRS and confirming that they want to be treated for tax purposes as a domestic corporation, they're considered to be deemed a U.S. person. So they're now excluded. If you're a United States citizen or a U.S. person, you are excluded from tax. All right. So let's talk about partnerships. And partnerships include a wide range of Joint ventures, limited partnerships, uh, syndicates—what we call a, a syndicate—is a, is a name for partnership from other other countries. Um, partnership must have at least two members and must not be classified as a corporation. Uh, a, corpor- a partnership is considered a U.S. person if it is created or organized in the United States. Limited liability companies—they um, can be classified under FERPTA as a corporation, as a partnership, or as a disregarded entity. Disregarded entity is a tax term. And so we're talking about the IRS treating you as a disregarded entity. That means that your taxes are paid on your individual tax return rather than as a separate LLC tax return. So, um, and of course, trusts, uh, there are, I'm sorry, go ahead. No, okay, can I go back to, yeah, to yeah, the go, LLC? Go so ahead, go ahead. As we were talking before, if there's multiple members, so is it the LLC itself that has to be just registered with a, with a EIN number or is it the actual members themselves? Because we have a lot where they are out of country and they form a U.S. LLC. So the, the, the status will depend on whether the single member is deemed a U.S. person. If, a, if it's a single member LLC, um, uh, if it's a... If, if it's a multi-member, analysis must be made on each individual that is a member of the LLC. If it is a single member, you just identify whether the single member qualifies as a U.S. person. If it is a multi-member, you have to you have to uh, you have to uh, make sure that each person uh, is uh, a individual who is a U.S. person. If one of them is not a U.S. person, um, that is going to trigger the tax potentially. And again, and again, I say potentially. We're we're not the title people are not the ones that decide whether or not it's the tax. The IRS decides whether or not it's taxed. We are just trying to prevent the buyer from having to pay that tax when we bring up these issues because 
The buyer is the one who has the legal responsibility to pay the tax. Not the seller of the transaction that's getting the proceeds at that time. It's the buyer that, that is, is responsible. That's absolutely right. And so, it's it's so backwards from everything else that yes. we do is because I'm buying a piece of property from you. You're a foreign person. The IRS makes me responsible for identifying you as a foreign person and knowing whether or not to pay 15% of the money that I would have paid you to the IRS as, as as withholding for tax. Right. It's 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 it is backwards. It really is. It's it, it really is strange. So um, does an exemption uh, to withholding apply? And this is where I think people get confused because it's it's not either or, it's and. And what I mean by that is if the sales price is three hundred thousand dollars or less and the buyer has plans to reside at the property as their personal residence with at least 50% of the time in the in the preceding two-year period, then it is exempt right. from withholding. But it has it's and it has to be both. All right, and I, I have a little uh, a little uh, schedule here to kind of let us understand. So, if the property is under three hundred thousand and it's going to be used as the buyer's residence, the full exemption applies and there's no tax to be withheld. If the property is between three hundred thousand and a million, and they're going to use the property as their buyer's residence, a ten percent withholding applies. All right. If the property is zero to a million, and it is not the buyer's residence, a fifteen percent withholding applies. And any property, regardless of use, over a million dollars being sold by a foreign individual the 15% withholding applies. So as you can see, it all kind of depends on the use and the dollar amount combined together to determine whether or not there's an exemption. So how do you determine the 50% time that they're here? What would they need for that? So um, there is a form from the IRS that that has to be filled out. Uh, and so that form asks the question, I, I believe, that, that asks you whether or not you're going to use it as your personal residence or not. And so you are legally answering a document that is available for the IRS, which means it's under the penalty of perjury. It is a felony to um, knowingly lie on a IRS document. Then, um, of course, the title agent is going to remind you of that when you're filling it out. Correct. So I, I guess the big issue is, um, you know, like we said, the responsibility for FERPTA compliance is the buyer's responsibility. If the buyer doesn't withhold the money and the IRS thinks the money should have been withheld, they're going to come after the buyer. And the reason they do that, and I know it's backwards, but the reason they do that is the foreign investor may be living in a foreign country. They may not have, the IRS may not have any ability to come after that person, but they know where you live because you bought the property. Right. <laughs> and they know how long you're going to be there. That's 50% correct. of the time, 80% of the time. That's correct. So the ultimate responsibility for complying with FERPTA is the responsibility of the buyer. However, good title companies like Michigan Investment Title make sure to identify whether or not there is a, a, a potential uh, w withholding that should happen. And a lot of times they'll actually withhold the money from the sales price and help the buyer fill out the form. The buyer has to fill out the forms and mail that into the IRS along with the money so that you don't have to worry about it coming up later. Correct. So we've had to do this several times, and, and thankfully it's not a, a real frequent occurrence, but I mean, at least 
probably, you know, a dozen times a year, yeah. you know, we, we go through this. So, um, but we do, we get a lot of questions about why and I don't understand and I'm the buyer, you know, why? And then the seller, of course, too. What do you mean you're holding my money? Yeah. And I mean, and they've upped it, you know, so there's even a larger portion and it's out of the sales price, not out of their proceeds amount. So, I mean, there are, you know, just different factors that we go through every time. And it's funny because then you get, (laughs) can I, um, my sister's a U.S. citizen, so I want to quick claim it to her so then she can sell it (laughs) and so they they can avoid, you know, having to go through this. So, I mean, that there are, you know, challenges and, and right and wrong. But um, it, people do try to to avoid. So if you know, we can't yeah. be a party to tax evasion. And of course, you know, if if you are a foreign investor, um, you know, the IRS is not some big scary entity. I mean, I know other countries' tax collector uh, divisions might be scary to foreign investors, but the IRS here in the United States is as long as you're honest with them and tell them what you're trying to do, they are going to go, they're going to bend out, bend themselves out of shape trying to help you. And I, I've always found that calling and just saying, you know, Hey, I'm a, I'm a foreign owner. I need to get a tax ID number so that I can sell this property. Um, you know, I need to fill out the forms, uh, those kind of things. Um, the IRS is there to help you. I mean, it, 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 literally is in their in their name they're the internal revenue service they are about service they want to help people and i know that i know that sounds flip and 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 not everybody wants to call the irs but it it it, it really is um sometimes helpful to call them and just walk through the transaction you're going to do and explain what you need fill out the forms get a tax id number Sometimes the IRS uh, can even give you a letter ahead of time that will tell you that the property is exempt. I was actually just going to bring this up because the percentage that we collect is like like the maximum percentage. Correct. So if they fill out the proper documents and forms or when they do their taxes and they fill this information out, it's actually possible that they will get a refund back. So they don't necessarily take the whole thing. And if you work with them ahead of time, you can get that letter and it may tell us, you know, that it's only 8% or they may tell us that it's exempt. Right. Yeah. So, I mean, gosh, if you were selling a $300,000 piece of property and uh, you you uh, you had to, uh, you know, you had uh, 10% withheld $30,000, what if the IRS only took half of that, you know, and you got 15000 back? That would be a... That'd be a nice uh, yes. a, a, a nice check to open up in the mail. <laughs> so, like you said, it's not a scary thing and you can actually work this problem ahead of time. And just let them know when you're considering selling. Yeah. It's that absolutely. easy, right? That's correct. That's correct. So I kind of wanted to, to flip and end on, on a fun note, and yeah. especially for real estate investors that are doing multiple deals a week or a month, coming to the closing table is not always the most convenient thing for them. They have other things to do, like buying and selling houses. They want to do what they're good at. They don't. We're here for the paperwork. Sure. So to get their signature, there is something coming up, hopefully soon, where it's accepted here in Michigan, where we can move forward with this. So I'll let you speak to that. Too. Sure, sure. So, um, so the, I guess I would compare this to um, the uh, like like Amazon online, and the whole um, the reason Amazon succeeds or fails is what they call the last mile. You can place your order for something on Amazon online. They can procure it from the uh, from the uh, uh, 
manufacturer. It can go to their warehouse. It can be shipped from their warehouse to their distribution center. It can go from their di- distribution center to the uh, UPS facility. And it's the last mile from the UPS facility to the person's house that matters. Because if that doesn't happen, nothing else matters. Everything else fails. And it's the same way with a real estate transaction. We, can, we as the title people can draw up all the paperwork. We can uh, take care of all the debits and credits for the money. We can make sure the title is correct. We can issue the title insurance. But it doesn't work if you can't get the person to sign on the dotted line to finish the transaction. That's the last mile in title. And today, the last mile has to be done in person, physically sitting across like like you and I are sitting from each other today. Uh, sign here, sign here, sign here, notarize the documents, and then and then they're valid and they can be recorded. Um, the la- the idea behind doing them electronically is instead of sitting face to face, there would be a use of technology to where we would have some sort of of, um, of um, a FaceTime call or or a Skype call or something that we would be able to communicate face to face over a computer terminal. And we would be able to sign the documents electronically, uh, sign them with your finger on the screen, uh, uh, maybe, maybe with a mouse or something, uh, could even use your phone at one point to where you would uh, sign with, with your finger and hit mm-hmm. uh, approve or something like that. So that is the technology that is being developed. And Michigan is one of 20 states that has gone ahead and passed laws to regulate how that kind of online interface transaction can happen. And uh, right now, the Secretary of State is in the process of uh, promulgating rules so that uh, there are rules associated with what kind of technology you can use to do this, this kind of transaction, uh, what kind of notary can notarize these transactions, uh, those kind of things. And so when those rules are finalized, probably next year, 2020, uh, real estate investors should be able to use a title company like Michigan Investment Title to do their closing but on top of that, do their closing in an electronic format to where you would just take a call on your phone, press a couple of buttons, say, yes, that's me, verify my identity, and be able to sign right there online without having to come to the office. Well, let's talk a little bit about the differences, too, because some people you know, will say, well, can't you just take DocuSign? And we can't. I mean, especially documents that need to be notarized. So, I mean, there are... We have a duty and a responsibility when we notarize a document to ensure that the person that is signing is, in fact, that person. So people could have a fake ID and present it to us at the closing table. But, you know, we look at signatures, we look at certain things, you know, and hopefully everyone is being honest and, and truthful with that. But with uh, when you're doing it online, how do you know, you don't know. Correct. So, so, how, so how are they securing this? And so why is it different from DocuSign and why is it taking sure. so long? So the, the, um, the idea is those documents that have to be notarized uh, by a notary, um, uh, we're moving that notarization process to an online. So if you're familiar with DocuSign, if you've uh, bought, bought a piece of real estate, uh, a lot of real estate agents use DocuSign to have you sign the purchase agreement perfectly acceptable, perfectly normal. There's no notary involved. Whenever you're notarizing the documents, the mortgage, the deed, uh, any affidavits that have to be uh, uh, verified by a notary, uh, those documents, moving those to the online world is going to include the component of 
How do you communicate with the notary? How does the notary add their electronic signature? And how does the notary validate the identification of the person that they're looking at? Fortunately, with technology and uh, because of uh, the, uh, the new uh, uh, Real ID law that was passed by the federal government, of which Michigan participates in, there's, there's only four states that do not participate in it right now. Um, if you've gone to the Driver's License Bureau to update your license, they will ask you if you want a compliant ID or a non-compliant ID. Uh, the compliant IDs uh, have a barcode on the back of them, and so it's connected to the national database. And so verifying identification in an ele- electronic transaction means you hold up your ID to your phone, take a picture of it front and back, and it actually has the ability to ping that national database and be able to identify that you're actually you. Uh, some of the software is even using some, uh, some uh, uh, facial recognition as well to make sure you are you. You match the picture that's on the, on the screen. You'll probably take a picture of yourself, um, take a picture of your ID. Some, uh, some of them are using uh, systems to verify uh, uh, information from your credit report. Yes. If you've ever uh, uh, gotten your free credit report to find out uh, what your credit score is and those kind of things, you'll get questions like, you know, what color was the 1983 Chevy that you owned? Or, you know, what was the name of the, the street you lived on in 1986? Right. And if you can remember, I moved around a lot. <laughs> I, I'm not sure. They, a couple of them look familiar. I'm not sure. Yeah, you know, you know, so you so, hope you pick the right, the right one. That's exactly right. So yeah. You, I think you have to get a certain number of them right. I think they ask you five five uh, questions. But um, so yeah, so there is a way to verify identification. Make sure you're you on the other side of that Skype call on the other side of that FaceTime call, and then you're signing the documents electronically, just like you would in a DocuSign environment. But it's being monitored and verified by a notary through the Skype call. That's what's different. Right. So I know like DocuSign can be is used as a valid signature. But in this case, it's not just the signature, it's the, the notarization that Correct. is causing this piece to really be analyzed. Correct. Correct. And it's the notary. And that, and, that, and again, back to the, the whole Amazon example, that's the last mile is, is up until this very point, yes, you could do some documents online. You could sign some things through DocuSign, but anything that had to be verified and signed by a notary had to be done in paper. And that is the real change that we're seeing with this new law is that those those documents that would up till now have been on paper can now be signed in an electronic environment and signed by a notary in an electronic environment. But currently, we could actually do what we call a hybrid. Correct. So today we do a, a hybrid. So a hybrid closing means some of the documents are electronic and some of the documents are uh, not electronic or paper. Um, today, several lenders uh, do uh, hybrid closing. So what they'll do is they'll, they will have the uh, buyer come to the title company office, and the title company office will have a laptop or something sitting there, and they will go into the lender's portal, and the borrower will sign all the documents electronically that do not require a notary. Sometimes those even include the, the mortgage note. And, uh, you know, they'll sign in to verify their identity. They were given a PIN number by the lender. They'll do all that. And then the documents that have to be notarized will actually be signed on paper. The mortgage, the mortgage itself that gets recorded, uh, deed if there's a sale involved, uh, any affidavits that have to be signed. Those three or four documents will be signed, notarized, notarized stamp applied to it, and then those documents will be sent off to the lender. And so that's that that's a hybrid closing. Large majority of it electronic, but still those paper documents that have to have a notary done on paper. And so 
potentially a cash transaction. Maybe just the deed needs to be notarized. The rest of that could actually be done electronically. Could be done electronically today, yeah. yeah. In Michigan. In Michigan right so, now. So yeah. this is a good thing. We're moving forward. We are. So that's, we have almost a 100% solution. <laughs> I think that's true. And I think in 2020, there will be a 100% solution because the um, the technology it, is there. The bill was passed, Passed, right? signed by the governor. It's uh, It's really just up to the Secretary of State now to finish with the uh, process of promulgating the the rules, uh, saying what kind of requirements the technology has to have, and promulgating the rules. Just uh, if you're a notary today in the state of Michigan, you have to go through the process of getting an additional um, certificate on top of that notary that says you're allowed to do electronic uh, notarizations. So you'll actually have a double notary. It, 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 some people call it that. Um, you'll have a regular notary to do regular transactions, and then you'll have, it's kind of like a driver's license to drive a motorcycle. You have a regular driver's license, and then you have a motorcycle endorsement that says that you're right. able to drive a motorcycle. It's kind of the same thing. You have a notary license, and then you'll have an endorsement that says you're also authorized to do uh, electronic transactions. So before I, I, the bill was, was passed, I know that some counties were giving us a, a hard time about that, um, where they just, they didn't want, they don't accept e-recording now. Mm -hmm. So they don't want to have to be required to accept an e-notarized, you know, an electronically signed document with an e-notarization. So that bill, does that fix that situation as well? Everyone will be required to, to accept that? It it fixes it in a way that made those counties happy. Good. <laughs> so um, uh, it has a it has a rule for what we call a paper out solution. And uh, for those that don't know, uh, one of the powers of being a notary public is you can certify a document. You can take a document that is a photocopy and you can apply your notary seal and say this is a true and accurate copy, an official copy of the original has not been altered or amended, and you can put your seal on it, and that document becomes an original document. It can, it, it can be recorded in the recorder's office. Like a certified true copy from the... Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. And so it's, it's, it's built on that kind of theory, is that if you do a transaction online and create these documents online, you can do a papering out. So you can actually take the document and, and, and print it out on paper, it's just a photocopy. It doesn't have people's live signature. It's just a it's just a visual representation of what they did online with their finger, and then you can apply a notary stamp to it uh, and uh, a live signature as a notary, and then that document will be able to be recorded in the recorder's office. It does not accept electronic recording. Papering out. Um, it's not the most efficient way to do things because it defeats the purpose of doing it all electronically if you can't send it to the recorder's office electronically. But at least it'll allow those transactions to happen and, and not be held up by a, a county that's not accepting them. Yeah, and a lot of the counties that don't accept those are smaller counties or less population. They don't do as many transactions. They, maybe they haven't found the benefit of e-recording as of yet. So it, it does. It provides the solution. Correct. Correct. Yeah. So, and uh, it, it's going to be a brave new world in, in uh, the uh, closing business in uh, 2020. Is uh, um, I'm, I'm anxious to see who the uh, you know if, if Michigan Investment Title can be one of the first first companies that does one of these closings. That'd be great. I'm I'm game. <laughs> I will volunteer. Yeah. Cool. So, uh, and then just to kind of finish up, one thing that somebody you know some people don't know about you is that you're an author. 
I am. I am. So, I appreciate the plug. Uh, of course. Uh, I, uh, I uh, published uh, a book in 2014 called The Ramblings of a Title Man. Um, I always joke and say it's the perfect book to have in the bathroom <laughs> because it's, it's, an, uh, it's an accumulation of short stories. And uh, they're usually about three or four pa- pages long, just perfect for the bathroom. Keep it in there. You can usually read one or two of them when you go. But uh, it's available at uh, ramblingsofatitleman.com. Uh, it's uh, about 150 pages, but just, just just some of the fun stories that uh, my family has accumulated over the years in, in title and, and uh, uh, some of the unique transactions that have happened uh, not only in the United States, but are all around the world when it, when it comes to real estate transactions and title and everything. And as uh, actually as part of my family's 100th year in the title business next year in 2020, I'll be publishing the, the next edition of that, and it will include all of the, uh, the short stories I've written since 2014. So uh, another five years of stories, so it'll be about 300 pages long. So. Do we really have stories in the title business? Oh, my gosh. You were, <laughs> you were talking to me about, um, about uh, verifying identity, and, and the one that popped in my head, um, my father in the 1960s actually had a transaction where the, uh, the, the, the man brought his supposed wife to the transaction and she signed, uh, as, as the buyer signed the mortgage and, uh, they, they left and what actually was his supposed wife was actually his girlfriend and he was actually buying this house for the girlfriend to live in. (laughs) All right. And, um, and so, and the, the reason the whole deal was found out is because the builder who was building the house had not delivered the refrigerator yet. And so they're like, Hey, the refrigerator is in. They called my father to get the phone number of the, uh, buyer so that they could arrange to have the refrigerator delivered. So my father opened the file and got the phone number of the buyer of the buyer who was the man at, at his, and this is the 1960s, no cell phones, any of that kind of stuff. So it was the phone number at their, at his house where his wife lived and my father called the house where the wife lived, and he's like, hey, I want to let you know the builder has your refrigerator ready for your new house. They want to deliver it this afternoon. Are you going to be over there? And, of course, the wife said, what new house? <laughs> Oops. <laughs> yeah, so, uh, so that one was discovered, and, of course, that deal fell apart. And, and, uh, and uh, I, I, I obviously, I think that resulted in a divorce and, and, and all those other kind of things. But, um, but yeah, you know, verifying identity um, is a important part of uh, fraud prevention in our industry, and so it's um, it's uh, happens more often than you think. It does. It absolutely does. But well, thank you so much for joining me today and answering some of our questions. And it gives a different perspective to people, and not just me explaining it as a title company. Sure, they actually get an underwriter perspective and a better explanation. Absolutely, so I appreciate it very much. Thank you very much for having me, and uh, uh, appreciate everybody out there that's uh, hearing me today. And uh, thank you very much. And uh, use Michigan Investment Title. Sure, thanks so much. <laughs> Until next time. Thank you. You've been listening to the Michigan Real Estate Investor Network podcast. Let's call it the network. To subscribe to the show, go to www.michiganreinetwork.com where you can have the show sent right to your inbox. Subscribe on iTunes or your favorite podcast app. If you'd like to be on a future show, there's a link on the site to submit your info. The network is 100% focused on the Michigan real estate investing community. Whether you're brand new or a grizzled vet, we want you to be a part and share the love.